Good morning. It is December 21st, a Friday, in Northern California. It's winter solstice today. I've been missing the snow. <laughs> Not that I ever grew up in the snow, but I don't know. This is the time of year that I always want to go to the snow, so maybe I'll meander. Anyway, I just was listening to a great converse, a little bit of a conversation that I was having on Anchor with a friend that's listening to my story here, and um, maybe that will get posted, I don't know, but it was basically about some of the language in this book that was done, written and published in the 40s, and this is Emily Carr's autobiography, and so it's her voice she's writing. And the discussion was about some of the politically incorrect language that we hear, like we've heard over the time of history. And this particular comment was about the term used as hunchback. And we talked a little bit about Victor Hugo's hunchback and Quasimodo, but you would never call somebody that had a disability or a deformity names like that now. I mean, if you did, I guess it's still done, but if you did, it's not quite kosher, right? It's not politically correct. Ah, So, that language is here, and I'm finding that fascinating. But the other thing I'm finding fascinating is I just looked up where she was possibly living and where she had to go to get to the uh, San Francisco Art Institute. Pulled up my map. I thought that I thought the Art Institute was on a hill, actually. Maybe it is. Where's Pine? I don't see Pine. She talks about Pine Street. Well, anyway. Oh yes, there it is. Columbus Avenue goes in. It's like North Beach area. That's right. Um. Well, anyway, one of the pieces that she's living in, or that's talked about in the last few chapters, is her walk from home to the school and where she took the shortcuts on Grant Street, or Grant Avenue at the time, Grant Street, Grant Avenue. And that Union Square area is, she would have had to probably go through there because she lives on Geary. And Geary is... I want to say east of that. Anyway, I'm not good with my north, south, east, and west until I'm out there, but uh, or maybe consider it south of that. Um, so Gary would come up, come, and she would have to go down Grant Street passing through that area that's now known as Union Square and through Chinatown on her way down to the school looks like I don't know it's very fascinating for me to hear the story being taken place at least her part of the story is being taken place right here in my city that I frequent so 
onward we go with the next few chapters. Mrs. Piddington twiddled the envelope. Her eyes upon my face warned me, Don't forget, I am your boss. You are to call on the roar rats at once, she said, and shook my sister's letter in my face. I don't intend to call upon the roar rats. I hate them. Your hating is neither here nor there. They were old friends of your parents in the days of the California gold rush. Your sister insists. And if I don't go... In place of your monthly check, you will receive a boat ticket for home. You have the Rorwitz address? Very well. Next Saturday afternoon, then. Mrs. Piddington approved the Rorwitz address. Um, money district. They are disgustingly rich, miserably horrible. The following perfectly good Saturday afternoon I wasted on the Roar Rats. The household consisted of Mr., Mrs., Aunt Rogers, a slatternly Irish servant, and an ill-tempered parrot called Laura. Mr. Roar Rat was an evil old man with a hateful leer, a bad temper, and cancer of the tongue. Mrs. Roar Rat was diminutive in every way, but she had thickened up and coarsened from long association with Mr. Rorat. She loathed him but stuck to him with a syrupy stick because of his money. Aunt Rogers had the shapeless up-and-downness of a cob of corn, old and still in its sheath of wrinkled yellow, parched right through and extremely disagreeable. Ellen, the Irish maid, had a violent temper and a fearful tongue. No other family than one specializing in bad temper would have put up with her. The parrot was spiteful and bit to the bone. Her eyes contracted and dilated as she reeled off great oaths taught her by Mr. Rorat. Then, with a slithering movement, she sidled along her perch, calling, Honey! Honey, in the hypocritical softness of Mrs. Rorat's voice. The Rorat said they were glad to see me. It was not me they welcomed. Anything was a diversion. When I left, I was disgusted to discover that I had committed myself to further visits and had, besides, accepted an invitation to eat Thanksgiving dinner at their house. The turkey was overcooked for Mr. Rorat's taste. The cranberry too, sorry, the cranberry too tart for Mrs. Rorat's. By the way, you know what I have to do an aside here? I thought the last chapter we were at Christmas Eve. <laughs> now we're going back to Thanksgiving. So it's not in any sort of chronological order that I'm noticing. Yeah, let me look at that back at the last chapter here. Our innocent, entertaining drunks, drunks after midnight on Christmas Eve. Yeah, remember she was, that guy came to the door and it was Christmas Eve. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> Alrighty then. We know that it's not in any order. Maybe these are just little writings she did. That's new. Okay. 
Back to the text. The turkey was overcooked for Mr. Rohrrat's taste, the cranberry too tart for Mrs. Rohrrat's. Aunt Rogers found everything wrong. Ellen's temper and that of the parrot were at their worst. Laura, the parrot, had a special dinner table perch. <laughs> sorry. Oh, God. <laughs> I can't stop laughing about that. Oh, my goodness. The eccentricity of these people. <laughs> it's amazing. Okay, let me get back to this. <sighs> okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh Laura the parrot and a special dinner table perch. <laughs> she sat beside Mr. Rora and ate disgustingly. If the parrot's plate was not changed with the others, she flapped, screamed, and hurled it on the floor. <laughs> oh my god. <sighs> Throughout the meal, everyone snarled disagreeable comments. Aunt Rogers' acidity furred one's teeth. <laughs> the old man swore, and Mrs. Ro- Mrs. Roarat syruped and called us all, Honey. <laughs> Honey. Pop goes the weasel, yelled Laura. <laughs> Squawking, flapping, and sending her plate spinning across the floor. There, there, Laura, honey, soothed Mrs. Rorat and rang for Ellen, who came in heavy-footed and scowling with brush and dustpan. When she stooped to gather up the food and broken plate, Laura bit her ear. Ellen smacked back. There were a few moments of pandemonium, Mr. R, Aunt R, Ellen and Laura, all cursing in quartet. <laughs> then Mrs. Rorat lifted Laura perch and all, and we followed into the parlor. (laughs) For my entertainment, a great basket of snapshots was produced. The snaps were all of Mrs. Rorat's relatives. "Why uh, Why do they always pose doing silly things, I asked. You see, honey, this household being what it is, my folks naturally want to cheer me. (laughs) I can't stop laughing through this chapter. Aunt Rogers gave a snort. Mrs. Mr. Rorat a malevolent belch. <laughs> the parrot, the parrot, in a sweet, tender voice, Mrs. Rorat's syrup, syrupiest, sang, "Glory be to God on high." <laughs> yes, Laura, honey. Yes, Laura, honey. Quavered Mrs. Rorat into her husband. Time you and Laura were in bed. <laughs> Mr. Rorat would not budge. He sat glowering and belching. Aunt Rogers put the car- parrot in her cage and covered it with a cloth. But Laura snatched the cloth off and shrieked fearfully. Aunt Rogers beat the cage with a volume of poems by Francis Ridley Havergal. It broke a wire of the cage and the book did not silence the bird who screamed and tore till her cover was in shreds. Mrs. Rorat came back to her relatives in the snapshot basket for comfort. Here is a really funny one, she said, selecting a snap of a bearded man in a baby's bonnet kissing a doll. 
Mr. Rorat was now sagging with sleep and permitted his wife and Aunt Rogers to boost one on either side till they got him upstairs. It took a long time. During one of the ha- their halts, Ellen came from the back in a terrible feathered hat. Going out, she announced, and flung the, f- <laughs> flung the ro- front door wide. In rushed a great in rushed in rushed a great slice of thick fog. Mrs. Rorat looked back and called to me. It's dense out, honey. You will have to stay the night. I drew back the window curtain. Fog thick as cotton wool pressed against the window. The Rorats had a spare room. Mr. and Mrs. Piddington would get home very late and would suppose I was up in my bed. Mrs. Rorat's honey and Aunt Roger's vinegar had so neutralized me that I did not care what I did if I could only get away from their that basket of snapshots. <laughs> I'm sorry, this, cap- this chapter is kind of comical to me. <laughs> the door of the... Sp- I guess we've all been there at some point in our lives, maybe, right? <laughs> the snapshot thing. Oh my God, just don't show me your pictures. It's okay, a few of them, but... <laughs> Basketful? Okay. The door of the spare room yawned black. We passed it and out rushed new paint smells. Redecorating, said Mrs. Rorat. You will sleep with Aunt Rogers. Oh, it's all right, honey. Aunt Rogers won't mind much. (laughs) Aunt Rogers' room had no airspace. It was all furniture. She rushed ahead to turn on the light. Look out. She, She just saved me a plunge into a large bathtub of water set in the middle of the floor. Please, San Francisco's sand this time of year. Each night I shake everything over water, especially if I've been out on the street. Oh, God. Immediately she began to take off and to flutter every garment over the tub. When she was down on her... When she was down to her next... The skins, I hurried a gasping. Please, what do I sleep in? Too late, the neck, the skin nexts had dropped. Aunt Rogers said, Of course, child, and quite unembarrassed, but holding a stocking in front of her, she crossed the room and took the hottest gown I've ever slept in out of the drawer. I jumped it over my head, intending to stay under it till Aunt Rogers was all shaken and reclothed. <laughs> I stewed like a teapot under its cozy. At last, I had to poke my head out of the neck to breathe. Then I dived my face down into the counterpane to say my prayers. After a long time, the bed creaked, so I got up. On Aunt Roger's pillow was a pink shininess. On the pink... On the... Sorry. On Aunt Roger's pillow was a pink shininess. On the bedpost hung a cluster of brown frizz. There was a lipless grin drowning in a glass of water. (laughs) Sorry, I'm going to have to read this over. Oh my god, I'm laughing too hard, you guys. (laughs) I can barely manage this one. Okay, let me start again. (laughs) Okay. After a long time, the bed creaked, so I got up. 
On Aunt Rogers's pillow was a pink shininess. On the bedpost hung a cluster of brown frizz. There was a lipless grin drowning in a glass of water. Without spectacles, Aunt Rogers's eyes looked like half-cooked gooseberries. <laughs> her two cheeks sank down into her throat like a couple of heavy muffins. <laughs> Alora's claw reached for the light pole. I kept as far to my own side of the bed as possible. <laughs> Dark, Aunt Rogers is sleeping out loud. It had never occurred to me that I could ever be homesick for my tiny room on top of the old Lindhurst, but I was. Gladness. In Geary Street Square, close to the Lindhurst, was a Church of England with so high a ritual that our evangelical bishop would have called it popish. On Easter morning, oh see, yes, here we go again, so she's not in any order. She's just have, telling snippets of her story. You know, I kind of like that. So maybe I can do that if I start to write mine. <laughs> Sorry, that was an aside. Okay, on, in, on Easter morning, I went into the Geary Street Square. The church bell was calling, and I entered the church and sat down in a middle pew. The congregation poured in. Soon the body of the church was a solid pack of new Easter hats. From the roof of the congregation, from the roof, <clears throat> she doesn't use any punctuation ever, so I'm just kind of like, sometimes a comma here and there. Okay, but not here. Let's see. From the roof of the from the roof, the congregation must have looked like an enormous bouquet spread upon the floor of the church. But the decoration of the ladies' heads was nothing compared to the decoration of the church, for her flowers were real, banks of arum and St. Joseph's lilies, flowers of every color, smell, and texture. Every corner of the church was piled with blossoms, such as we have had to coax in greenhouses in Canada. But here, in California, there was no cold to frighten flowers. Nothing had to be persuaded to grow. Stained glass windows dyed some of the white flowers vivid. White flowers in shadowy corners glowed whiter because of the shine of lighted candles. Incense and flower perfume mixed and strayed up to the roof. Hush melted and tendered everything. The hush and holiness were so strong that they made you terribly happy. You wanted to cry or sing or something. Suddenly, high up under the roof, where incense and the fragrance of flowers had met, sounded a loveliness that caught your breath. For a moment, you thought a bird had stolen into the church. Then you found there were words as well as sound. Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. Quickly following the words of violin, 
exquisitely wailed the same thought and bursting hurriedly as if they could hardly wait for the voice and the violin to finish the booming organ and the choir shouted hallelujah hallelujah it was a tremendous gladness to be shut up in a building it was the gladness of all outdoors either the church or i was trembling the person on either side of me quivered too even the artificial hat flowers shook. A clergyman climbed up into the pulpit and lifted arms puffy in bishop's sleeves. The church hushed to even greater stillness, a stillness like that of the live flowers, which, like us, seemed to be waiting for the bishop's words. color sense. I had advanced from the drawing of casts and was now painting still life under the ogling eye of the French professor. I was afraid of him, not of his harsh criticisms, but of his ogle eyes, jet black pupils rolling in huge whites like shoe buttons touring around soup plates. He said to me, you have good color sense. Let me see your eyes, their color. The way he googled, sorry, the way he ogled down into my eyes made me squirm. Nor did it seem to me necessary that he should require to look so often into my color sense. He was powerful and enormous, one dare not refuse. His criticism most often was scrape, repaint. Three times that morning he had stood behind my easel and roared, Scrape! When he came the fourth time and said it again, my face went red. I have, and I have, and I have, I shouted. Then scrape again! I dashed my, pal- I dashed my palette knife down the canvas and wiped the gray ooze on my wet paint rag. In great gobbing paint splashes, I hurled the study of tawny, ragged chrysanthemums onto the canvas again. Why must he stand at my elbow watching, grinning? The moment he was gone, I slammed shut my paint box, gathered up my dirty brushes, rushed from the room. Finished? asked my neighbor. Finished with scraping for the old beast, she saw my angry tears. The professor came back and found my place empty. Where is that little Canadian? Gone home mad. Poor youngster, too bad, too bad. But look there, he pointed to my study. Capital, spirit, color. It has to be tormented out of the girl, though. Make her mad and she can paint. The hard-faced woman student the one who ordered birds for her still-life studies to be smothered so that blood should not soil their plumage, the student we called Wooden Heart, spoke from her easel in the corner. Professor, you are very hard on that young Canadian girl. Hard? Professor shrugged, spread his palms. Art, the girl has makings. It takes red-hot fury to dig them up. If I'm harsh, it's for her own good. More often than not, worthwhile things hurt. Art's worthwhile. 
Again, he shrugged. Sisters coming, sisters going. Having once gone to my guardian for advice, I continued to do so. The ice was broken. I wrote him acknowledging my check each month and telling him my little news, dull nothings, but he troubled to comment on them. He was a busy man to be bothered writing the formal little interested notes in answer to my letters. I respected my guardian very much and had a suspicion that my going to him direct for advice had pleased him. He was Scotch, wise, handled our money with great care, but had no comprehension of art whatsoever. The camera satisfied him. He sent my board and school fees. I don't suppose it ever occurred to him I needed clothes and painting material. I had to scrape along as best I could in these matters. My guardian thought very highly of my big sister. I had no doubt that that his consenting to let me go to San Francisco was as much for her peace as for my art education. I was not given to good works and religious exercises like the rest of my family. I was not biddable or orthodox. I did not stick to old ways because the family had always done this or that. My guardian thought it was good for me to go away, be tamed and taught to appreciate my home. Art was as good as an excuse as any. Undoubtedly, things did run smoother at home without me, but after I'd been away for one year, the family decided to follow me. My sister rented the old home, and the three of them came to San Francisco for a year. My big sister still had deep infatuation for Mrs. Pittington. It was really Mrs. Pittington that she wanted to see, not me. Mrs. Pittington took a flat, and we boarded with her, but domestic arrangements did not run too smoothly. My sister liked bossing better than boarding, and in a final clash, dashed off home, leaving my other two sisters to follow. Almost simultaneously, Frank Pittington got a better job in another city, and they too left San Francisco. Then I was all alone among San Francisco's wickedness. Mrs. Pittington handed me over to a friend of a friend of a friend, without investigating the suitability or comfort of my new quarters. The woman I was donated to was an artist. She lived in Oakland. I had to commute. I plunged wholeheartedly into my studies. The year that my family spent in San Francisco, my work had practically been at a standstill. I did attend the art school, but joined in all the family doings, excursions, picnics, explorings. No one took my work seriously. I began to get careless about myself. Mrs. Tuckett, the friend of the friend, was a widow with two children, no income, and a fancy for art. She resented that she could not give her whole time to it, was envious that I should be able to. 
the living arrangements of her cottage were most uncomfortable. Still, I enjoyed my independence and worked very hard. Perhaps, after all, the ogle-eyed French professor and my big sister were right. Maybe I needed the whip, needed goading, and discomfort to get the best out of me. Easy, soft living might have induced laziness. The harder I worked, the happier I was, and I made progress. We were a happy bunch of students. I do not remember that we discussed art much. As yet, we had not accumulated knowledge enough to discuss. We just worked steadily, earnestly, laying our foundations. San Francisco did not have much to offer in the way of art study other than the school itself. No galleries, no picture exhibitions. Art was just beginning out west. The school was new. Students came here to make a start. Their goal was always to press further afield. San Francisco did not see the finish, only the beginning of their art. Thank you for listening to this last segment, the different chapters. We are now at the end of page 73. The next chapters will be Last Chance. Sorry. Mrs. Tuckett. Telegraph Hill for sure. And that would probably take us up till, yeah, that's probably enough for the next reading. Hope you're enjoying this story. It's fascinating to me. And then we also notice that it's not in much of an order, but I think it is in order. It's just that our holidays were. So, unless it was Christmas Eve and then the next Thanksgiving and then the next Easter, that's a possibility. I don't really know how long. I think she was only in San Francisco for two years or so. So that's possible. Anyway, hope you're enjoying the reading. Thanks for listening.